0: On this episode of This Week in Linux, we've got a lot of great news to talk about. Red Hat announced their Flatpak runtime for desktop containers. Darktable announced the 3.2 release of their open source raw photo editor. Libretro announced the release of Retroarch 1.9.0, which is for Linux retro gamers. KDE ships with the 20.08 updates for their application suite. And KDE also announced that the KDE Neon has been rebased on Ubuntu 2004. And an open source earthquake early warning project has been announced, which is pretty interesting. I can't wait to talk about that. Plus, we got the news that the FSF has elected a new president of the foundation. We've also got some unfortunate news to talk about related to HBO Max supposedly dropping support for Linux, and the NSA has disclosed discoverability of the malware which is targeting Linux systems, so that's not good. But we got that and a bunch more all coming up right now on your weekly source for Linux Good News. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean and by Bitwarden. Welcome to episode 113 of This Week in Linux, a weekly Linux news podcast, a part of the Destination Linux Network. I'm Michael tonell and if you're new to the show, this is the show that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take on the latest topics using my over 20 years experience as a Linux user. Before we get started this week, I want to let you know a few things about some housekeeping related to the show. For example, DLN Game Fest is happening in a couple of weeks. It's happening on August 30th on Sunday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. So anybody can join us to watch the stream. We're streaming it live for everyone. Anybody can participate in the live chat and hang out. Uh, but if you would like to participate as a player in the games, you need to be a patron of Tux Digital or Destination Linux or DOS Geek or whatever. Anything related to DLN, you can get a link by being, becoming a patron on Patreon or Sponsors or whatever else, basically. So if you're a patron and you want to join, be sure to check out for those links. And if you want to learn more about the Game Fest, go to DestinationLinux.network slash Game which will tell you a lot more details about it, as well as what games are going to be playing and all that. So again, be sure to check it out on August 30th at 4 p.m. Eastern Time for the DLN Game Fest. And speaking of Destination Linux, if you have not checked out the podcast Destination Linux, which I am a co-host of, along with Ryan and Noah, it is a fantastic podcast. It's super fun. You get educational value of learning things about Linux, but also there's a lot of banter and just, you know, it's just a fun podcast to check out. There's an audio version, a video version on YouTube, and a bunch more. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, go to destinationlinux.org to check it out. And if hardware is your thing, then check out Hardware Addicts. This is a podcast about technology and computer hardware. It's really awesome. It even has photography sections with Wendy and Ryan teaches all kinds of stuff about hardware. It's really cool. I don't teach anything about hardware because I'm not a hardware guy. I'm more of a software person, but I wanted to learn about it. You can join me on my journey from being a hardware Padawan to a hardware Vulcan. Yes, I'm fully aware that I've combined two different franchises, but that doesn't matter because you need to check it out. Hardware Addicts is an awesome podcast. Go to hardwareaddicts.com And finally, if you want to be kept up to date with more than just once a week, then follow me on Twitter or Mastodon because I post stuff all the time related to a variety of different things on my Twitter or Mastodon. So be sure to do that. I'll have links in the doobly-doo or description, show notes, whatever, below for both Twitter and Mastodon. A first in the show this week is the Red Hat Flatpak runtime has been announced for desktop containers. So if you're not familiar, flat, Flatpaks are a container system for applications for desktop use. It solves a lot of problems for developers about making packages for different OSs, different Linux-based operating systems and different versions of those operating systems because the the traditional style of making packages actually has conflict between different versions of the same operating system which is ridiculous but that happens and uh, this is a one of those things Flatpak's is one of those app formats to solve that problem Uh, along with app images and snaps as well and i'm a big fan of all of the different operating or different universal formats because it creates a potential of moving Linux forward in a much faster way because previously it was a lot of effort to make applications for Linux. Now it's a lot easier thanks to these formats. So I'm a fan of all of them. So thank you to everybody who works on these formats. But improving Linux market share and making it move forward and progress is a really important thing to me. So thank you for doing that because these formats were very, 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 very needed for decades. So yes. Uh, but anyway, Red Hat is actually a sponsor of some sorts, like they're connected to Flatpaks, sort of. They don't really express like exactly how much, but they are to a degree. And they are making this runtime though for RHEL directly. So this is a, a runtime f- of RHEL. So it's allowed, they say that it allows application developers to build containerized de- desktop applications on top of Red Hat Inter- Enterprise Linux, and it will be integrated into RHEL 8.2. So for those who want to know more about like what does that mean? Well, there are different types of runtimes. There's different libraries. Like FreeDesktop.org has their own runtime, which has like a core of set a core set of libraries. And then there's other applications that use their own runtimes. Like GNOME has their runtime, uh, GTK runtimes. Uh, KDE has their own runtimes for additional libraries for their environments. And Rails uh, Flatpak runtime comes with its own rail packages. So for support of the Rail Enterprise Linux platform basically so they say that the support for this runtime will be maintained for the same 10-year cycle as rel 8 which is cool but at the same time it's kind of interesting because it's much longer than the free desktop.org flatpak runtime which means that developers have the ability to create applications and stuff and not have to worry about porting the apps for newer versions but it's it's kind of odd to me because flatpak's entire purpose is to be able to have support in an easier way and a more up-to-date way because you don't have to worry about the underlying uh, core system being updated because they're separate in that sense like I don't really see the like the reason for this but maybe I'm just missing something so if you are uh, you know interested and you're excited about the whole RHEL support of this then let me know like what I'm missing here in the comments below because I do think it's cool but that part is kinda like I don't know what the value of that is to have support for a flat pack that's ten years old? I guess it's cool for the reliability of the enterprise and that kind of thing. But in overall, like desktop usage, you know, kind of, I guess. But I do think it's cool because it allows potential for other companies to look at it and go, "Oh, well, we can have support for Red Hat. Then we can make a flat pack using this runtime, and maybe that runtime could be used in other systems for other." Uh, versions of flat packs and stuff like that that would be a, a game changer i think like for example da vinci uh, resolve has a support in CentOS and red hat basically only that's the only things they care about supporting and i think that's bad because having an individual distro lock is really weird i mean technically you can get it to be supported you can get it to work in other operating systems based on Linux, you can. You can get it in Ubuntu, you can get it in Arch, supposedly, I haven't got it to work in Arch, but some people have. Uh, and you can get it in, in Ubuntu and Debian and stuff like that, because other projects have made it work, but DaVinci themselves only support CentOS and RHEL. And having a Flatpak approach, may be able to make them more likely to create a Flatpak through this runtime and make it support it easier on other systems. I don't know maybe that's just wishful thinking but hopefully that somehow relates to helping that go across more distributions Uh, but anyway I'm a big fan of flat packs and as well as all the other uh, universal app formats because of how important they are to the progress of the Linux ecosystem so I think this is pretty cool if let me know what you think about this notes and if you know more about like the value of having that 10-year cycle for flat packs let me know in the comments below and I'll have links to the article about the or the blog post that announced from Red Hat about this runtime in the show notes below. Up next in the show is a really awesome application called Darktable. It is a, a raw photo editor. It is not like Photoshop It's more like Lightroom. It's this they have the latest release of 3.2 of Darktable and I want to talk to you about a lot of cool things related to Darktable on this new release there's been a ton of things including some bug fixes and performance improvements and all that but also a lot of cool features been added like they've new cameras supported from Nikon to Hasselblad that's just that's a fun thing to say Hasselblad. Uh, Lighttable view has been rewritten and the film strip reworked to give a lot of performance gains especially when using the zoomable light table view They've actually done uh, improvements to have support up to 8K screen resolutions, uh, culling view rewritten from scratch. Uh, many types of overlay are now possible on Light Table thumbs. They've improved the UI of various Light Table modules, including they've in- done a complete overhaul of the CSS, which gives a, t- a dark table a much more professional look. And they've also improved the various modules like color picker and location to better fit the UI. And they even said that they have now possible to add some C- custom CSS rules directly into the preference dialog. And they say in general that d- Dark Table wants to make every single aspect of the UI themable using CSS at some point, which is really, really cool. I mean, Darktable itself is already a really awesome application. It's a lot over my head because I'm very new to photography, and by that I mean I basically know nothing about photography, and I only had a, a camera for like a week, but Dark Table is really, really cool and allows a lot of features, and I've had some uh, actual professional photographers tell me, teach me things about Darktable and that kind of thing, so it's really cool, but I have no idea what most of the stuff I'm saying here is, <laughs> but like for example, the nega doctor module helps to inverting negative films. Like I understand what those words mean, but exactly what that actually means in using it, I, I don't really know. Uh, the histogram display they have a new histogram display called RGB parade. I don't know what that means. New notes fields for metadata. I get that one. I got yay. I got got one. Uh, more reliable image change detection, which it, I sort of get. I understand the words. Same thing. Uh, New downsampling preference for faster response in darkroom. Uh, Filmic RGB is updated to version 4. This is a new color science for uh, having integrated highlight recovery. And I don't know what that means. I know what those words mean, right? Again but there is something that i do know because it's really interesting they've added support for curved gradients it's helpful for putting a gradient mask on an image with a horizon line that is curved due to lens distortion and i learned that from hardware uh hardware addicts we had a conversation with wendy about lens distortion and uh, lens distortion and stuff like that on one of the episodes in the camera corner so check that out hardware for more information about that it's really cool i mean i've learned a lot from wendy Uh, related to photography, thanks to Hardware Addicts. So if you're interested in this, learning more about Darktable and all that kind of stuff, check out that podcast. Uh, But another thing that happened with this latest version of Darktable is they have a full rewrite of the pipe ordering system and a bunch more bug fixes and performance improvements and all kinds of stuff. Darktable is really cool. If you're at all interested in photography, definitely check out Darktable. And just so you know, if you already have Darktable, I want to give you a couple of bit of information regarding upgrading. They say that the new library and configuration files are not backward compatible so you need to keep that in mind and also they say that making a backup is strongly advised so there you go if you're new to dark table none of that matters to you and if you're upgrading that you know you should probably know those things so yeah uh, Darktable 3.2 has been released and if you want to check out the release notes and all this stuff related to it and as, as well as links to hardware addicts talking about uh, dark table and other things uh, check out the links below in the show notes up next in the show is RetroArch 1.9.0 has been released. This is a thing for gamers, but more like retro gamers. And this is something that has this news has a little bit of a bittersweet type of thing. So, first of all, let's talk with the sweet stuff and talk about the update for RetroArch 1.9.0. So, they have a lot of new th- improvements, and they say that they created a new Explore view for all playlists. This is really cool because they've improved their search system really a lot. They say it allows their search based on on criteria for all kinds of things like amount of players, developers, publishers, the system, like console, like the different type of platform, Uh, also origin for like the country of origin for that game's development. Uh, by release year, also by genre, and a bunch of other stuff, so that's really cool. And the search terms are now stackable with an unlimited number of filters, so that's really, really cool. And also they say that there's easier input remapping, especially for touchscreen devices. They have a new uh, load content startup notification option that if you enable it, it'll show brief animation as like whenever anything new content is being loaded. They've also made it easier for an easy drop-down list for input remapping. And they've added improvements to their FFmpeg video player. They've improved these uh, for, they've made it have a lower memory footprint and also improved the disk I.O. from it uses less of it. And they've also done a lot of bug fixes and UI, usability improvements, all kinds of stuff. So that's awesome. So if you're interested in, in retro gaming, then this is something you should check out. However, there is a little bit of an issue. And that's the bitter part. So Libretro, the people who make RetroArch, uh, announced that they had an infrastructure hack, saying that they had some issues with hacking on the buildbot server as well as their Libretro organization on GitHub. So there it's not a super awful thing but it is, you know, there are some issues here, right? So here's what happened. They say that they accessed a accessed a BuildBot's or the BuildBot server and crippled the not least stable BuildBot services and the NetPlay lobby service. They say that right now the core updater and NetPlay lobbies won't work. The websites for these have also been rendered inaccessible for the moment. They say that they gained access to their Lib Retro organization on GitHub by impersonating a very trusted team member. And forced a and force pushed a blank initial commit for to fair percentage of the repositories, effectively wiping them. And they say that they managed to do that to damage to three of the nine pages of the repository. And they say that, uh, that that as far as like the aftermath of this happening, they say that they that no cores or retroarch installations were compromised. So it's not like the users actually affected any users, like any players or whatever, but that they are just search it's still a hack so it's still a problem right but it's not like it's it's not as bad as it sounds when you just say oh it got hacked you know that kind of thing but essentially the hackers simply wiped the entire BuildBot server clean uh, they say that for the current time being the core installer is non-functional until further notice the same goes for update assets update overlays update shaders and all other online services that retroarch users normally have access to such as netplay lobby services they're still waiting for a response from GitHub, and they say that they're uh, trying to restore some of the repos to get help from GitHub to do that, as well as help narrow down the attacker's identity. They say moving forward, they already had long-term plans to migrate to a new server. This will probably be the catalyst to make it happen, and they lacked. Uh, f- they say that they lacked frequent updated, uh, auto- frequent automated backups citing that they already had a high cost of running the service in general, so there wasn't much left over for backup storage. This creates the issue that they didn't have the backups to make it easier. That's why I said that they needed help to restore some of the repos from GitHub, because hopefully they have backups or something like that. But it, you know, it's an, it's an issue by not having a backup. They say the last time they performed a backup of their old BuildBot server was about a couple of months ago. So it's kind of like an interesting thing of like, they were going to be migrating away from that server anyway, so they kind of felt like it wasn't necessary until they migrated or whatever and then this happened so you never know what could happen in general because you know you know there's terrible people out there and that's pretty much what it is and um, you know having a backup is important so you know like i talked about in dark table if you don't you need to have a backup a lot of the time so if you don't have a backup for all your data that you care about you need to do that right now you know this is related to anything and also be clear one back one copy of your stuff is not a backup an extra copy of that is not really a backup I mean yeah it is but not really you need to have to be safe with your data you need to have three backups of your data in various different locations and various different devices to make sure that you actually have it good to go you don't want to risk it you want to have as many copies as possible so backups 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 and more backups but they did say that they would like uh, for some help if anybody would like to contribute to them to get extra money to help them for more, getting more backup set up. They have a goal of $1,300 to do this. Uh, so you can, co- you can go to Patreon and help cover the costs there. Then go, I'll have a link in the show notes below for more about that. So yeah, so it's bittersweet news. If you'd like to help out, I'll have links in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and so much more. You can get all this plus access to the world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. And if you want to get even more stuff, you can check out their over 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. You can get started on DigitalOcean for two months for free with a $100 credit by going to do.co/dln. Again, you can get started with that $100 free credit by going to do.co/dln. And I want to thank DigitalOcean again for sponsoring this week in Linux. Up next in the show is the latest releases for the application suite from KDE and that is the release 20.08. There's dozens of KDE apps that are getting new releases, new features, new usability improvements, some redesigns and a lot of bug fixes, that kind of stuff. Uh, So first of all let's talk about Dolphin, KDE's file manager. They have uh, updates including features like remember and restore last viewing location which is really nice, Uh, mount ISO images is now available, there's a new copy location menu item for copying the current location which is very nice because I do that quite a bit and just being able to right-click and copy it very cool to do that uh, they've, they've also done improvements to console the terminal emulator the ability to copy the file path of a file or directory and paste it into other applications so it's kind of like making those two connect like that uh, they have made it possible to show thumbnail previews of images on when hovering a, an image file with your mouse cursor. That's pretty interesting. And they've also made it work possible to assign colors to various different tabs. And they've also have some improvements to the Kate text editor, the Elisa music player, KStars astronomy app, KRDC remote desktop tools, uh, the ocular document viewer, a bunch of other stuff, including GwynView image viewer now saves the, the size of the last used crop box. Meaning that makes it possible to quickly crop multiple images in the same size in rapid succession. I mean, that sounds like it's not that big of a deal, but I do that quite a bit. So I'm happy that has been added. And uh, they've also done some other improvements to like bigger applications like Digicam and Caden Live. We talked about Digicam 7.0 in a previous episode. So check that out. And I'll have a link to that in the show, in the show notes. And I'm also going to talk about Caden Live in the next episode because I want to do some more testing before I talk about it because I do use Caden Live a lot. So every time there's a new release, I am super excited so on the next episode I actually have time hope to be like doing some like testing and stuff like that through like the editing of this episode and all that so I'm gonna save that for the next episode yeah let's move on to the next topic that's another KDE topic related to KDE Neon but remember links in the show notes below for the updates related to the KDE applications up next in the show is the latest release of KDE Neon it's now based on Ubuntu 20.04 LTS Now there is not a new version of KDE Neon because there is a new version but they don't have version numbers. They just base it off the latest LTS and then they have a rolling release for everything else. So it's like a... Interesting structure, like really interesting structure, and we'll get to that in a second. But it's based on Ubuntu LTS, so this is the latest version. So the current previous version is based on LT at the Ubuntu 18.04 LTS, and now this is based on 2004 LTS. So there's a bunch of new improvements, like new hardware support thanks to the newer kernel, and some new security fixes, and a bunch of other stuff like the updated apps in the repo that are not related to KDE that are just generic repo updates, that kind of stuff. Um, but the difference between this is that KDE Neon is a rolling release model of KDE sitting on top of a static core distro. So it's it's weird. That's why it takes a while for there's a new version of, of Ubuntu and a new version of Neon it takes a few months to get to that point because it's a weird structure, right? So it's a rolling release model of the KDE stack. So the KDE Plasma desktop environment gets updated. Uh, as as soon as it's available, there's a new version on KDE Neon like the same day. Then the uh, updates for the KDE application suite, as soon as there's new updates to the apps, those are released as well. And like the KDE, KWIN window manager, like all that stuff gets updated. But if it's based on, if it's a KDE stack related thing, then it gets updated with the rolling release model. But if it's not, there's like another application or it's the core system, then that's controlled by Ubuntu. So they pull in updates from Ubuntu's uh, directly. Like, when I say controlled, I mean they just pull the updates from Ubuntu. Like, Ub- Ubuntu doesn't actually control KD Neon. It's just whenever there's new updates, KD Neon pulls them in. As weirdly worded. My bad. Anyway, so the, it's interesting because of how this structure is built, and they also say that it is not a distro. I don't know what that means, but they say it's not a distro, but you can download the ISOs and install it like a distro. And they also have partnerships with KDE with like the KDE Slimbook is a partnership between KDE and the Slimbook laptop vendor. So it's like it's not a distro, but they have hardware partnerships to provide the non-distro to people. I don't know what that means, but that's what they say on their documents that it's not. So anyway, this new version of this non-distro distro has a new installer using calamares. Uh, which adds interest interesting features like the new full disk encryption option which is very very cool it also adds an oem install mode for this non-distro distro and a bunch of other stuff so uh, Katie Neon is a really cool project. It's also kind of confusing based on the structure of what they call it and stuff like that, but anyway, if you want to learn more about it, you can check out the links in the show notes below, but I first I want to give you a quick note. There are people on Reddit saying that they had some issues with the upgrade, so there's quite a few people saying that they're having uh, problems with like black screen after updating, Discover not being able to search for apps. Uh, problems restarting the focal upgrade when it does happen when the issues do happen Uh, problems with their backup tool after the upgrade for neon and also problems with like unmet dependencies for various programs after the upgrade so just so you know that those issues are happening for the moment at least during my research terms like you know maybe it's been like it's been like a day since i looked so maybe it's fixed i don't know but if you have a new version of kde if you're installing KDE neon now you'll probably be fine you probably won't have that issue but if you are trying to upgrade you might run into some of these issues so i just want to let you know about that so if you are interested in kde neon i have links in the show notes below up next in the show is an interesting open source project for early warning of earthquakes so this is an earthquake early warning system called open eew or open u i mean, I don't know if I'm supposed to say it like that, probably not, probably just EEW, but you know, I kind of want to say you because that's fun. Anyway, they say that in the U.S. alone, nearly half of the population lives in areas prone to potential shake damage during an earthquake, and according to the U.S. United States Geological Survey, many countries use intricate earthquake early warning systems, or EEWs. Uh, Japan's early warning system says that it cost an estimated $1 billion to construct, they say that developing countries with have poor infrastructure makes timely warnings even more critical, and nearly 3 billion people globally live with the threat of an earthquake and don't have access to nationwide systems. So that's like the reason for this project to be made. Uh, Grillo, the company that's developing Open EEW, they're making it an uh, IoT-based earthquake early warning system created with support from IBM, USAID, the Clinton Foundation, and Aero Electronics. Grillo is both a software and a hardware company, and they're going to be collaborating with uh, all those companies as well as the Linux Foundation, because Linux Foundation will be hosting Grillo's OpenEW project in collaboration with IBM. Uh, The statement from Senior Vice President and GM of projects at Linux Foundation, Mike Dolan, says that OpenEW projects represents the very best in technology and in open source, we're pleased to be able to host and support such an important project and community at the Linux Foundation. The open source community can enable rapid development and deployment of these critical systems across the world. So this is really interesting. It's uh, They say that there's the OpenEW includes three integrated technology capabilities, such as de- deploying sensors, detecting earthquakes, and sending alerts. Uh, they have uh, a lot of stuff, they, they talk about the details of like what's, they have like an accelerometer, a network connector, uh, a buzzer to let people know, uh, th- three uh, uh, NeoPixel LEDs to for like indication of like what's happening, that sort of stuff, or uh, if they say it rapidly detects and transmit ground motion through this this device, and they say that according to Grillo, proven to be as good as seismic seismometers, seismometers that's it, probably proven to be as good as seismometers that cost 60 times more is according to grillo and they say it really shines in sparsely populated areas like nepal new zealand and other places Uh, they say it's very it's better in terms of like what google's approach is using phone sensors only works with like populated areas that kind of stuff like populated urban areas because the accelerometers are not as powerful um, but OpenEW is also compatible with non grillo sensors, so they say that it's deployable on various platforms, from a Kubernetes cluster to Raspberry Pi and a bunch of stuff. Like they even say that you know the algorithm that filters out noise to avoid false positives, and there's machine learning enabled in the earthquake confirmation stuff, like that. Like it's it's pretty interesting. Uh, the the funny thing about this is that I actually already knew of another tool that's an open source uh, project related to this and the reason I knew about that project is the name of it is Raspberry Shake and the reason I know is because it's a funny name I like the name it's clever it's Raspberry Pi with earthquake so shaking so Raspberry Shake I just think that's a solid name so for those who want to know of another option of this there you go Uh, anyway the Grillo founder uh, Andres Mira I totally said that name wrong sorry they say that for years we have seen that EEWs have only been possible with very significant governmental financing due to the cost of dedicated infrastructure and development of algorithms. We expect that open EEW will reduce these barriers and work towards a future where everyone who lives in seismically active areas can feel safe. That's, you know, that's cool. I'm glad that they're making it, though. It's like to say that this is you know, not been done before. I mean, Raspberry Shake has been around for like 2016, I think, since then. But anyway, it's, it's very interesting. They also say that um, they're extending a Docker software version of the detection component that can be deployed to Kubernetes and Red Hat's OpenShift on the IBM cloud using IBM uh, cloud-hosted Node-RED dashboard. Uh, the pr- they say the primary aim of the project is to encourage a variety of people, makers, data scientists, entrepreneurs, seismologists, and etc., to build EEWs in places like Nepal, ecuador new zealand and other seismic regions Uh, so to kind of like basically have an easier way for people to deploy it in a more cost effective way as well so it's really interesting i'm glad that this is being made because this is a very important thing for those areas that don't have a lot of like a lot of urban things to be able to use the other systems like the google one Uh, and these these kits supposedly range there's no full details about like what it's going to cost, but they say it ranges anywhere between like 300 to 900 or something, but like the average would be probably like 500 or something like that I don't they haven't really given the details. This is just what the estimates are right now uh, for the kits but Related to the other ones like for example the Raspberry Shake They're saying that these uh, reports are saying they're very similar to the Raspberry Shake or whatever. So I don't know exactly about that part, but I still think it's really cool. The open E W. If you want to learn more about it, we'll have a link to the Linux Foundation blog post in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the open source password manager that I use and trust. And you can go to bitwarden.com/dln to get started with your free account. If you're not familiar with password managers, they are a fantastic way to have a balance of security and convenience when using online accounts and websites and stuff like that. Because websites these days, just they all ask for you to create an account. And you don't want to use the same password on every account because then there's a potential of massive, massive compromise, so don't do that. You want to have a different password for each account and each website. But that creates a lot of passwords. How do you keep up with them? Well, you use a password manager like Bitwarden. And also, Bitwarden has a password generator, auto-filling passwords so you don't have to type them in. It works on mobile, desktop browsers, and all kinds of stuff. Bitwarden is a fantastic password manager, and it's open-source software. That's right, 100% open-source software. And if that wasn't enough, they even hire third-party companies to do security audits on their code to make sure it is as best as possible. Then make the smart move like many from the community have. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get your free account on Bitwarden or but if you're like me, you might want to check out the premium account because you might want to like what I did was I just want to show my appreciation for their service because they have a premium account that only costs $10 per year. That's right per year. So the fact that it only costs that and I can actually support the company for making this awesome software, I am all on board on that. So uh, go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started with your free account or your premium account to show your appreciation for their awesome software. Thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux and the Destination Linux Network. All right, so we're in the unfortunate section, a little bit of the show. So we're going to talk about HBO Max and how they have seemingly silently dropped support for all Linux browsers so let's talk about that there's a lot of speculation on why it happened but so far right now regarding like what works if you do want to get hbo max they say that spoofing a user agent doesn't work because it does like it checks for the platform uh through the wide li- the wide library binary so if you want to do it on linux you have to get windows version of chrome running inside of wine which is obviously not an ideal solution but apparently it's because of the, some DRM issues with the L3 thing because they, this is a speculation. They don't know exactly if this is right or not, but this, there's a user on Reddit that says that Widevine in browser is the L3 version on Windows, Mac, and Linux, but the Linux version doesn't support window or the verified media path or VMP, so most major streaming services restrict it to the SD now. Um, so that's one of the issues they think that, that causes it. Uh, and somebody else said that they it looks like they may be using some kind of hybrid drm to make it work so i don't know some people have said that they've got it work in firefox on one computer but not the other so they suspect that hbo max is having some issues that's similar to what disney plus did related to drm or whatever but it ultimately comes down to this fact that when you're doing drm like i get the logic behind drm but at the same time when the more barriers you put into place the more piracy you're going to create because the whole point of DRM is to stop piracy but the problem with DRM is that you create barriers therefore making people not have access to the service and then institute like you create the catalyst for piracy by doing that so not having support means that you're creating more piracy like that's just it's the exact opposite end goal of what you want so it's very very silly that you would even have these roadblocks in there like at the very minimum have at least SD work I mean people want HD of course but if you're gonna have nothing you're just gonna make sure that people go and pirate it so good job I guess and one person did get a response back from the, the when they sent in a they contacted support for HBO Max they got a canned response that is ridiculous It says, Hi, I'm Robert, a customer advocate of the Specialized Support Team. I understand that you're trying to watch HBO Max on your Linux PC and can definitely look into this further for you. So, okay. Thanks immediately following that they're going to look into it, says, Linux is not a supported operating system for HBO Max and will error out when trying to stream. We are able to offer a one-month credit for HBO Max if you were interested. Please reply with your thoughts on this and your answer as well to this email. So, we you, we don't support your operating system, but if you would like to get a credit for things that you can't watch on the thing you want to watch it on, well, we're happy to help there. <laughs> anyway, so... This is how you make piracy, by making it hard to use your service. If you'd like to learn more about this and check out the Reddit thread related to this topic, I'll have a link in the show notes below. Up next in the show is some more unfortunate news related to NSA disclosing some thing about malware targeting Linux called Dravarub, something like that. So the FBI and NSA published a joint security alert about a new strain of Linux malware. Dravarub, Dravarub, something like that, I don't know. And they say that it's been linked to APT28 after they reused some servers across different operations. And according to Fraunhofer's Malpedia, a website related to uh, malware, says that APT28 is a cyber-espionage group believed to have ties with the Russian government. So anyway, they also say that the APT28 named it not the FBI and NSA. Uh, And what it does essentially is a multi-component system with an implant, a kernel module rootkit, which is not good, rootkits are very bad, Uh, a file transfer tool, a port forwarding module, and a command and control server all in this one package uh, malware. And they also say that the client side of the malware communicates directly with a threat actor's server using JSON over WebSockets with RSA encryption. So it's going to steal your data and hack it, but through encrypted transport, I guess okay uh, and they also say that it, it allows to sense, uh, instructions to be sent for downloading and uploading files executing arbitrary commands with root privileges forwarding network traffic to other machines on the network and a bunch of stuff bunch of bad stuff according to the report the rootkit is highly successful at hiding on an infected machine and survives reboots so the, to prevent this kind of thing you would want to enable uefi to set it to full And or thorough move well to enable UEFI and set it to full or thorough enforcement mode. Uh, They also have a bunch of other tips and stuff in the PDF, which I'll link in the show notes below, especially uh, as well as the ZDNet article about this. Um, But I wanted to talk about it because one, it's an interesting thing that needs to be discussed because it's malware on Linux. Because a lot of people don't think that malware is possible on Linux, which it is possible. It's just not. It's not common. It's very very rare and it gets a lot of publicity because of how rare it is like you there's a lot of awful 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 things in malware and viruses and stuff for windows so it doesn't get a lot of attention but when something happens with Linux you get a lot of attention because it's so rare and I wanted to be I every time this happens, I want to give as much detail as possible that I can. I don't I'm not a cybersecurity analyst or anything, so I don't really understand it that well. But I do dig in to see like how much it affects and what exactly it is. And this is a, a case of not an attack vector. So you can't be hacked from this. But if they've already got access to your system, this is a way that they can deploy and take full control or full control over the system. And it's it's like Kind of like that's why I covered the boot hole situation and that sort of stuff. So it's very, 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 very bad, but it requires the system to already be infected and hacked in order to deploy it, so it's not as bad as some sites have tried to make it seem like. So if you'd like to learn more about this, i have links to the stuff of like ZDNet article and that kind of thing in the show notes below. Up next in the show and the last topic for today is the Free Software Foundation or the FSF has elected a new president in Jeffrey Knoth probably said your name wrong sorry he's the new elected president for the fsf the free software foundation and they also did a joint announcement with that saying that there's a new member of the board of directors Odil, Odil, odley banasi i i have no idea how to say your name I, i'm sorry but at least i tried and that gets some points right probably not anyway if you'd like to learn more about these individuals i'll have the link to the announcement in the show notes below But I did want to say one thing, so since there's a new president for the FSF, I would like to make a formal request that you change the meaning of FSF from Free Software Foundation to the Foundation for Software Freedom. Because being able to explain to people what software freedom means versus what free software means is a thousand times easier. Actually, probably more than a thousand, like a million times easier. Saying software freedom is like a guaranteed instant understanding almost... Versus free software, where you have a built in confusion of the word free software term meaning free as in freeware or free software as in gratis. Change that maybe? I know mean, you'd, you'd be able to keep FSF.org and all that. You'd be still keep the same initialism. It's just a thought because free software is not a very good term for the movement. So either software freedom or Libra software. I can explain that further if someone wants to know, but uh, let me know in the comments below if you'd like me to explain it further in like a separate video or whatever. But uh, as a marketer, I just have to say that free software has always been a terrible term for that. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. Also ring that bell to get notified of new episodes and new videos to the channel. And if you'd like to support the Tux Digital channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, responses, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. And also by becoming a patron, you're helping me directly finance the creation of this show. So I want to thank everybody who has contributed in the past and currently. It is amazing that you're helping me. I just, I can't thank you enough. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And if you'd like some swag for the Destination Linux network, we also have a really cool shirt that I happen to be wearing called the Linux is Everywhere shirt. You can go to destinationlinux.network slash store. This is a shirt that I designed to convey the message that whether or not you know Linux is there, it probably is. That's why it has tucks blended into the background to convey the message that whether or not you know, it probably is. And it kind of does like this uh, really cool effect. I don't know. I'm a little biased. I know I designed it, but it's a fantastic shirt. I'm wearing it now because I love this shirt. I know I'm overselling it, but hey, whatever. slash store We also have ways to contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Private Internet Access, Humble Bundle, and many more by going to TuxDigital.com/affiliates. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux as I'm a co-host of that show. And also be sure to check out hardwareaddicts.org because I'm a co-host of that show as well. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital and the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for your another episode of your weekly source for Linux Good News.